0: If you have a Bible, you can open to Exodus chapter 20. We'll look at um, verses 1 and 2 and then 15. So um, in our series on the Ten Commandments, just kind of a recap of the general trajectory of the thing, is that we've been looking at the way that things are in a fallen, broken, uh, sinful world, and then at the way the things are um, are supposed to be. Right, the way things are broken inside of us, and uh, the way things are supposed to be inside of us. We were created in God's image to live and to flourish in certain ways. And even though uh, we've warped and destroyed that life for ourselves, um, and the whole world's broken because of it, God is working in us and. Um, He's working in us now and one day will bring to perfection the good and beautiful life that we were made for. So the, the new heavens and the new earth, um, which is the eternal destiny of all those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, will be a place where God's law is truly our delight, right? It will be a place uh, where God's law will characterize absolutely everything that we do uh, flawlessly, right? And... Um, God's law will enrich and express our relationship with God and uh, with one another. So <clears throat> God's law, um, it, it turns us outward, right? Uh, we are naturally, uh, because of our sin, we're, we're selfish. And so God's law turns us outward. It commands us away from our innate selfishness. It gives us a vision for uh, God, a vision of God toward his worship and uh, toward his service and toward joy in him, and it turns our love away from ourselves and um, and toward our neighbors. <clears throat> and the, the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ enables us to live out this vision. Uh, it enables us to live out this Godward life and to love our neighbors as ourselves. <clears throat> so the gospel is what turns us into people, who can say with David in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law, I love your commandments, I love your precepts, I love them exceedingly. All right, maybe that's a foreign concept to you that um, you'd be able to feel that way about God's commands, <laughs> but um, it's the gospel that makes that change in our lives. And so this morning we're going to explore how the gospel renews us and helps us think about and keep the eighth commandment in particular. So let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you for your word, even though so frequently we find ourselves out of alignment with it, and we find it painful to analyze ourselves in light of it, we thank you that you've given it to us because you love us, and so now we pray that as we sit under your word that um, you would encourage us by it, ultimately, that you would shape us and assure us of your great love to us and your great promises to us, um, make known the gospel to us in a way that truly changes us into the likeness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. And God spoke all these words saying, "I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal." is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, recently, a movie came out, uh, Les Misérables, you know, right? The the newest version of the book by Victor Hugo from mid to late 1800s, right? Um, I'll confess up front, I have not seen the newest movie. In fact, I'll confess uh, that I haven't read the book, <laughs> but. Um, but I love the movie that came out a while years, several years ago. I don't even remember when it came out. But Liam Neeson is the uh, the main actor in uh, in that version of it. I love that movie, and um, <clears throat> so maybe you've seen it, maybe you've read the book, maybe you've seen the new musical. But uh, maybe you're familiar with the story because. Um, it's cited so often in sermons. <laughs> but, uh, but the basic concept is that Jean Valjean is this character that's set in France. <clears throat> um, so he's got kind of a funky name. It's hard to pronounce for some people. But Jean Valjean, he's this, uh, the main character who um, early in his life, he um, finds out in the book maybe rather than the movie or the, the musical. I'm not sure. But <clears throat> he, um, he steals bread. He steals in order to... to feed his starving sister and her family. And, um, and that earned him 19 years of hard labor. It was actually the original theft was compounded by the fact that he tried to escape imprisonment several times. So he was in, um, in hard labor imprisonment for 19 years, and it totally shaped him. Right? Um, he became someone who steals. Uh, maybe Maybe that one theft for love 's sake um, might not have uh, warped him, but that time in prison truly warped him to, uh, <clears throat> he became a kind of person who who steals now and so when he was released after nineteen years of hard labor that just ground his soul down, um, he, he was he was looking for work couldn 't get any work because he's an ex-con. he 's an ex con he He happens upon the the mercy of a bishop, goes into the bishop's house, stays one night, decides to um, betray the bishop's mercy and hospitality by stealing his silverware in the middle of the night and and on the way out knocks out the bishop who discovered him uh, stealing his silverware. <clears throat> so he, he gets away, and just later that very morning, he's immediately captured by the local constables and um, brought back to the bishop because they're sure that this is uh, someone who stole from the bishop. And the bishop um, uh, basically forgives him, right? He, he kind of pretends that, no, in fact, he, he didn't steal this. I gave it to him. And, you know, in fact, um, you forgot the candlesticks. I told you about the candlesticks. And these candlesticks, these silver candlesticks, are worth a fortune. Right, more than the silverware that he had stolen. And he, he puts them in the bag and says, go, right? Um, and so the, the police are kind of confounded. And, what? Okay, I guess we'll believe the bishop. Um, he didn't really steal this stuff. He, he was, it was given to him as a gift. But So they leave, <clears throat> and the bishop says to um, Jean Valjean, who is this hardened criminal, right, a broken soul, he says, I have purchased with these candlesticks, I have purchased your soul for God. So basically, go and sin no more, right? He's, he's, got this, um, he's got this huge gift of grace and mercy backing up a uh, transformed life. And he's utterly transformed by this exceedingly gracious act. Not only was he forgiven his, his true crime of, uh, of stealing and, and beating the bishop's head in, um, <clears throat> he's, he's not only forgiven these crimes, he's, he, even more he's given great wealth to begin with. Right? Um, and after a few years then... In the story, we see him as a, um, a wealthy factory owner, and he's become the mayor of this little French town, uh, well-respected. He uses his fortune, he uses his business to provide for many citizens in the town, especially the poor, right, who have no jobs. Come, I'll give you a job. You'll work for me in my, in my factory, and he makes it a pleasant place. And he takes care of the people uh, there. So he became a generous benefactor, working to sustain and, um, and, and not only just sustain, but improve the life of others as a response to the grace that he himself had been shown. Right? <clears throat> and, and so that's a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do in us, what, what kind of a uh, transformation can take place in our own hearts through the power of grace. God's grace to us. And um, in the New Testament, I think we kind of see the the pinnacle. All these um, commandments that we've been looking at, we've we've said, well, on on the surface, there's this this narrow commandment being given, you shall not steal, right? All of them have this deeper meaning that go down to the root of our souls. And I think that this is kind of fleshed out. The fullness of the commandment is fleshed out in Ephesians 4, verse 28, says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, right? So it's just the reverse of stealing. Rather than taking from others, make yourself able to give to others, right? Um, Give to the share with those who have need. So that's the goal. Of our life from a certain perspective, um, all these commandments kind of tackle life from a different perspective. From one perspective, the goal of our life is to work and to give, to share, right? We're here to to work and to give. Um, from the very beginning, this is how it was meant to be. You see in Genesis chapter 2, um, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. God was the one who planted this beautiful garden. Um, in Eden in the east, and, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right, so Adam and Eve originally um, lived in the garden which God himself had planted. God was the owner, and Adam and Eve then were the tenders of the garden. They were the stewards of the creation that God had placed them over, and they were to cultivate and develop fruit and develop beauty, right? Because these things God had made, they were pleasing to the sight, and they were good for food, and um, Adam and Eve were to cultivate then things that were pleasing to the sight and good for food. They were to work and and cultivate this and tend this garden. So then God was the great high king, and he placed Adam and Eve as uh, king and queen under him to enjoy, and to share God's own bounty uh, together. They were to share it with one another, which wasn't just for me, myself, and I. It was for us. And so we're here to work and to share and give. Uh, We were made for work before sin entered the picture. Um, I think that's really hard for us to understand because sin and the fall have so corrupted work and corrupted our view of work that um, it's hard for us for us to imagine that work is actually the way that it's supposed to be, right? But sin, I mean, that's where the problem came. We were made for work before sin entered the picture. Um, we were made to share the fruits of our work together. So, um, but then we wanted something that we didn't have, right? There was one thing that we were forbidden uh, to take from in that garden, and guess what? We wanted it. Uh, we took it for ourselves. We disobeyed God and we stole from him and we ate the forbidden fruit. And so God cursed us and he cursed the world and he made our work difficult and painful. And, um, and now it's called labor, right? It's laborious. It has that connotation of difficulty. Um, <clears throat> so now work is hard and it's often unpleasant Ultimately, it's through our own fault, right? Ultimately, it is how it is because of us. Being fallen, selfish creatures now, we take um, matters into our own hands, and, um, and, and the selfishness then um, often grows into things like laziness and greed, which then find their expression in Stealing taking what is not ours, that we didn't earn it, we didn't work for it. Uh, <clears throat> manipulating others into giving us what is theirs, even though we didn't work for it. Um, even to the degree where we'll, we'll enslave others so that we can avoid doing the painful work, have other people do, we'll steal their very lives and all the work and the fruit of their hands, right? We'll take it all for ourselves. Um, That's common throughout history. We feel that we deserve certain pleasures. We feel that we even deserve certain basic necessities in life, and we feel we have the right to them, even if it means taking these things away from other people or using them for our selfish ambition, using them for our selfish gain. And we do this in a lot more ways than just sneaking into each other's homes at night and taking money and possessions from the the safe, don't we, Uh, in secret. Maybe that's your concept of a thief. Um, Maybe you've never done anything like that, so maybe you don't think you've broken the Eighth Commandment. Um, If that's what you think, apparently you're in agreement with about 90% of evangelicals who feel that they've fully kept this commandment. Uh, If you've learned anything from this series on God's law so far, it should be that if I ask you, have you broken this commandment, you should say instinctively, yes. Even if you don't know quite how you've done it, <laughs> you should say, yeah, yeah, I've broken that commandment. And then I'll ask you, well, how have you broken this commandment? And you say, well, I've got to think about that. So let's think about that, right? Let's figure that out uh, together. Have you ever wasted time at work and gotten paid for it? That's pretty much all of us, <laughs> right, surely. Have you ever downloaded something that was an infringement of copyright law? Uh, Have you ever subtly manipulated someone into giving you something that you wanted? Drop a hint here or there that you might really like it if they gave you this. Have you stayed too long at mom and dad's place, too many years, without looking for work? Have you maybe at some point... Conveniently forgotten to complete a section on your tax return? Have uh, you failed to pay an employee for working overtime? Have uh, you spent too much time in idleness? Um, here's where it gets interesting. Have you neglected worship, or fellowship, or service? because you've been anxious about lifestyle things or m- money or possessions? Have you withheld giving your tithes and offerings um, to maintain a certain lifestyle or to achieve certain financial goals that you've set for yourself? Because ultimately, um, think about stealing. Uh, we're stealing from God, right? Malachi uh, 3, <clears throat> God says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Does God need food? No. What happens with that food? A lot of times it goes to help the poor, right? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. So one way that we break the Eighth Commandment is robbing God, stealing from God, not bringing Him our tithes and offerings. Ultimately, that's symbolic. Because... uh, It's symbolic of the fact that God owns everything that we have. God owns you. God owns you and me, and he's given us many gifts. He's not just given us money in the bank. He's not just given us financial security or um, possessions, material things. He's given us skills, gifts of various sorts. Right? Um and he has the owner's rights to all of it. He planted the garden, and he put us in it to tend it. You are stewards of everything that God has given you, including your own life, right? Your energy, your time, your skills, your money, possessions. <clears throat> and as his steward, then, you are to use all of his gifts according to his will. And his will is that we would give to all, generously and sacrificially, right? But we take instead what he has given us and we keep it for ourselves. We consume it. And then we yearn for more than he has given us and we take it for ourselves. We live at the expense of others rather than, like Valjean, making ourselves and our resources available for the good of others, to bless others. So we attempt what we're doing there. I think we're attempting to thwart the curse um, in our own way by our own cunning, because because of the curse, because of our sin, work is so hard. Um, we just don't want to tackle it head on. Okay? Giving and sharing these things that we were made for—they'll surely deplete us. They will surely diminish our joy. So. Instead of work, instead of giving and sharing, we're just going to take and get and consume for ourselves. Right? <clears throat> we fear that God won't provide for our needs, that God doesn't want to see us content and satisfied and happy. And, and who can blame us for that being difficult to believe? If you know yourself at all, uh, you'd think if you were God, if you were a holy God, um, you'd want to have nothing to do with you either, right? Uh, that's the way I feel But we fear that God won't provide for us, that he doesn't want to see us happy. So we'd better manage that for ourselves, right? Whatever the cost may be to others, whatever the cost may be to our own souls. Um, So we put our hopes in money. Martin Luther said that um, we expect more from money than we do from God. We find our comfort in our possessions and we become um, functional Materialists. Thinking what we can see, what we can get our hands on, by hook or crook, um, is all there is. And it's all there is worth living, so we give ourselves to it. Right? <clears throat> and, and in doing so, we rob God. We rob him of his glory as our provider. We rob him of the right to tell us how to use our wealth. We rob him of the joy of seeing us live as we're supposed to live. It delights God to see us live as we were meant to live. But the gospel says that even though that's the case, we rob God. Uh, We steal from him. It says that God moves toward us as a good father. He keeps loving, He keeps providing, He keeps giving. And His giving is sacrificial beyond our understanding. Right? He gave the life of his beloved son, his perfect son, to make us sons and daughters. Criminals, thieves, sons and daughters. Through the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus gave up all the wealth and comfort of heaven, and he chose a life of poverty and homelessness, and he lived well below his means in order to give everything to you and me. Second Corinthians, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus is uh, it's kind of the ultimate Jean Valjean. He's the great benefactor right? who labored in life and in death to bless us with eternal life. And the treasures of heaven, he's purchased our souls for God through his sacrifice, through giving up everything. And now his spirit, the spirit of the son, the spirit of God lives in us and shapes us and renews us in the delightful image of God's son. He makes us the kind of people who work to the glory of God, makes us the kind of people who give to others as a reflection of how God, our Savior, how God, our Father, has so freely given to us. And now God calls us to live for him. He's always called us to live for him. But um, especially if your faith is in Christ, he calls you to live for him. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Oz Guinness has a book called The Call, uh, which is, he says, everyone, everywhere, and in everything lives the whole of life as a response to God's call to do whatever you do to the glory of God. And John Calvin wrote, each individual has his own sort of living assigned to him as a sort of sentry post. No task will be so sorted and base provided you obey your calling in it that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. All right, so we work in our various callings. Um, kind of the Reformation captured this term vocation. Right? It's calling. It's the way of looking at your life, your career, your job, what you do uh, six days of a week <laughs> um, as your calling, your vocation. And we work for God's glory because he's called us to do that, and we work for the good of others as well as ourselves. We believe that God has absolutely lavished on us an abundance of grace, and we use those gifts, every gift that he has given us, and we invest our time and our energy as his stewards to advance his kingdom in the world around us. And that's the point of the, the gospel reading, which is the parable of the talents. And let me go back and read that again. It's a, it's a remarkable story that... Um, Honestly, it doesn't make sense the first couple times you read it, but um, from Matthew 25, it's the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. So that's Jesus, right? Jesus is the king, he's the master. And he's gone on a journey away from the earth at this point, he's in heaven. And he called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. That's an incredible amount of money, right? A talent, um, kind of in the Old Testament Hebrew days, a talent was a, a weight. It was 75 pounds-ish. So if you're talking about 75 pounds worth of silver, that's a lot of money. In the New Testament, it's, um, it's, not, just, it's not like a coin, it's not some... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a figure that stands for um, something like 20 years' worth of day laborers' wages. It's about $600,000 kind of equivalent. So a talent is about... So the guy, he gave five talents. He gave about $3 million. Right? Gave five talents. To another, he gave two. To another, one. I mean, these are substantial amounts of money. To each according to his ability. So God knows you. He's given you everything that you have. He knows what you're capable of. He's lavished you with gifts. And then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid $600,000 of his master's money. Lavish gifts. He buried it in the ground. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. It wasn't that they had to go and gamble it all away at Vegas, try to make some money. They had a long time to invest all these gifts. He would receive the five talents, came for you. You delivered me five talents here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, That's awesome. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful over a little. You've been faithful over $3 million, and that's a little. What you have now compared to what you will have in heaven, it's a little, right? I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same with the, the guy who had two talents and made it four. But the one who received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I know you're the kind of guy who multiplies his wealth. And I was afraid. And I buried all this wealth in the ground. I mean, that's like, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's insanity. This guy is afraid of his master. He's afraid of using the gifts that if he had just put it in the bank, it would have generated wealth by itself. The gifts are so great all you've got to do is leave them out there, and they'll produce fruit, right? Um, but he, he was afraid of risk. It was a selfish fear of risk that, drew, that drove the last steward to self-protection. Self-protection. He didn't use the wealth, the gift of his master, to honor his master. He didn't trust that his master had measured out his gracious gifts to him in order to employ them in his service. Right? But Christians can be like the first two servants because we trust that God has placed us where he wants us. He has given us the gifts that he knows we can use. And he's doing so as a father who delights in his children, who delights to see them grow and flourish and bear fruit in their callings, as was originally intended in creation. And so whether you get a paycheck from using your gifts or not, whether you get a a paycheck every couple weeks from your vocation or not, you are called to use everything God has given you: your work, your time, your energy, your skills, education, possessions, homes, monies, uh, everything. You're called to u- to use it to cultivate the world around you, to bring beauty and to bring food, things that uh, help us to live. Right? Um, whether you're a farmer. Whether you're a custodian or a banker or an artist, a teacher, engineer, volunteer, stay-at-home mom, student, a young child, whatever. You You are a king or a queen of this world under the great high king. You are sons and daughters of the Most High, the Scripture says. Your Father has been working in the world until now, and he has placed you here to work. And sometimes our jobs might advance technology in a way that benefits everybody. Sometimes our jobs just push back against the curse, and we just clean things up and fix things that are broken. Sometimes our jobs are to to learn and study and prepare for something that's coming. Sometimes our jobs are more focused on ministry. Sometimes our jobs allow us a lot of time to pray or get to know other people. Sometimes our jobs um, pay us a lot of money so that we can use them for kingdom ministry. Our jobs in themselves will never satisfy us. We're not to find our identity in our work and our vocation. Our identity is to to be found as sons and daughters of God in Christ, which comes only by his grace. You just you have that guaranteed to you. And our jobs won't always feel great. There's always going to be something wrong with them. It's always going to feel like toil, thistles and thorns, digging at the dry ground. Not until we're in the new heavens and the new earth where everything works the way it's supposed to work, because Jesus fixes it once and for all. But our jobs can be places of redemption, places where we build relationships with others and support others, places where we can apply all the, the multifaceted beauties of God's law in contrast with the ugliness of rebellion. All right. If you're stumped as to how to do that, how to apply that to your own calling, how to live for God in your calling, then, um, then maybe we need to sit down together and think about it. I'd love to help you think about how you can glorify God in your work glorify God in your being a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is, But we're called not to steal, to get for ourselves what we think we need, what we don't have and we want, but to work in order that we may give to invest ourselves in every way for the good of others around us. We give as a part of worship. We do that on Sunday mornings. We give as a part of worship because everything that we have comes from God, and symbolically, we place it all at his feet. We place it all at his disposal through our tithes and offerings. Right? We say, God, you have purchased my soul, my eternal destiny. You've given me your own son. You'll withhold no good thing from me. You've promised that, that the treasures of heaven are mine. You yourself are mine, and so I am yours. Right? What I have is yours. Do with it as you will. We give a, a significant portion of our income, uh, that 10% tithe concept from the Old Testament being kind of the baseline, it's significant, right? It's a significant portion of our income, significant enough that it hurts, that it changes the way that we live because we don't have that money, right? It hurts it, it, just a little bit, unless you're extravagantly wealthy. <laughs> it, it usually hurts. Um, so maybe um, maybe some of you actually need to stop stealing from other people in various ways. Um, Maybe some of you need to become more honest in business and stop living out the generosity of other people. Uh, maybe some of you need to work more to be able to provide better for those in your families, and not just in your families, but in the church and uh, those outside the church, to be able to give more to those who have needs uh, that you can see and try to meet. Maybe some of you give a 10% tithe already and it basically means nothing to you. It's not any kind of sacrifice to do that. Um, so maybe you need to consider uh, actually taking your lifestyle down a notch um, in order to share more of God's gifts with those around you. Maybe there are other ways right, in which you can move as a redeemed human in Christ Jesus toward keeping the Eighth Commandment and working so as to give in a beautiful way. Um, you need to think about that for yourself. And, um, Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying to the, the Ephesian elders as he's leaving, says, by working hard, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let me read uh, in closing just this quote from Ed Clowney at the beginning of the bulletin. In the power of Christ and his love, We can learn not only to refrain from stealing what belongs to others, but to multiply our treasure by clinging to Christ alone. Out of the bounty of that miraculous multiplication of our gifts and treasure, we can amply supply those whom Christ places in our path. Let us shower on those around us the treasure God has given us, not counting the cost, but looking to that treasure that is laid up in heaven for us, namely Christ himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thieves. Uh, we have robbed you of your glory. We've robbed you of your rightful place in our lives as our master, the one who has given us good gifts to tend and to cultivate for your glory. Um, we have taken everything that you've given us and we've uh, spent it on ourselves. Uh, we've consumed and we've neglected others. Um, Some of us, you've been working in our lives, even for many years, to, to put a halt to that and to give a new direction to our lives. And so we pray that you would continue in us that work of repentance and faith that you would cause us to look at Christ as our ultimate treasure in heaven, the one who has given us the spirit and the gifts to be able to honor him in this world as we walk through it in our callings, in our vocations, the various places in which you've put us. We pray that you would turn our feet away from stealing and and robbing you of glory, that you would turn our feet toward a beautiful work and toward uh, sacrificial generosity so that we would be um, more reflective in this world of who you are and what you've done for us in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.